from WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. Today, on The Public Morality, law professor Frank Bowman joins me to discuss his new book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. That's coming up on The Public Morality. Welcome to the public morality. Article 2, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution reads as follows. The President, Vice President, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. This language that clearly outlines the basis for removing the president from office, remains subjective in nature. The term most often open to interpretation is high crimes and misdemeanors. What actually does it mean? My guest, Frank Bowman, grapples with the somewhat amorphous definition in his latest book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. Bowman is a law professor at the University of Missouri, where his areas of expertise include law and religion, legal history, and impeachment of the president and other federal officers. Professor Frank Bowman, welcome to the public morality. Uh, Happy to be here. Mm -hmm. When you wrote High Crimes and Misdemeanors, you were considering a set of circumstances that could warrant impeachment that in that is unrelated, at least as far as those of us in the public knew, to the current facts. Have the recent revelations about President Trump and the Ukraine altered in any way the underlying premise of your book? No, not the underlying premise. The book is a history of impeachment, which is a mechanism that was first invented by the British Parliament back in the 1300s as a means of legislative correction or counterbalancing of executive power, in those days royal power. Uh, And the book describes how uh, that device was developed by the British and later adopted by Americans, first as, uh, well, we were colonies, and more importantly later when we drafted our own constitution. Uh, But uh, the, the, the basic premise of the whole book, I suppose, is that impeachment is a critical mechanism for uh, counteracting executive abuses of power, uh, a mechanism that is given Congress for precisely that end. Uh, and, you know, the particulars of any bad behavior by any individual president or other official or abuses of power by any individual president or other official are going to vary from time to time. But the fundamental principle remains the same. Well, what distinguishes uh, between an impeachable offense versus a non-impeachable offense? Well, the 
our framers, uh, first of all, decided to have impeachment at all, which they might not have. Um, and they created a, you know, procedures for carrying it forward. And then they turned to the question of what kinds of things, what kinds of official behavior would be impeachable. Now, they might have just left that alone, left it unsaid, unspoken, unwritten, because uh, that's what the Parliament did for 400 years. There's never any British definition of impeachable conduct. But our framers were in love with written constitutions and the written word, and they decided they would actually put in uh, a phrase that described the kinds of things that would be impeachable. Um, and, of course, we know the phrase that they adopted was treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. The part of that definition that gets the most action is the high crimes and misdemeanors part, because treason is defined so narrowly in our Constitution that it hardly ever arises. It is defined as really only applying to giving aid and comfort to a foreign enemy in time of war. Only one person's ever been impeached on that ground, a federal district judge right around the time of the Civil War who in effect, defected to the Confederacy. Uh, bribery is the second possibility. Bribery means pretty much what you think it means. Um, and a lot of federal judges have been impeached for bribery. But the framers didn't think treason and bribery covered enough ground, and so they adopted this phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors. And the question for everybody is, what does it mean? And the first thing to remember about high crimes and misdemeanors is that it doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean what the words seem to say. Because if you read the phrase high crimes and misdemeanors as a 21st century American, you're likely to say, well, that's obviously about crime. That's about something that you could charge somebody with in criminal court and put them in prison for. But that's not what high crimes and misdemeanors is all about. High crimes and misdemeanors is what we lawyers would call a term of art. It was a phrase that was used by Parliament for a very long time, basically just to describe the kinds of stuff for which Parliament had impeached various officials over the years. And lots of that stuff was not criminal. It involved various kinds of official misbehavior, but much of that was not criminal. Moreover, before the, the, the adoption of the American Constitution, uh, the term high crimes and misdemeanors had even been used by American colonists in one important impeachment in 1774 or 5 in Massachusetts. And again, in that case, uh, the conduct involved was not a crime. So if it's not a crime, um, what is it? And the answer is one we really have to figure out by using uh, first an examination of history, figuring out what it meant when it was first adopted in the Constitution. And to do that, we kind of have to look at British history. And we also you know, use later American history. We look at the kinds of things for which American officials particularly presidents, have been impeached in the past. And what we find is that it includes a fairly wide variety of things. Uh, corruption, of course, is a notable one. Uh, obstruction of judicial and, and law enforcement processes, uh, another notable one. Um, that's Article One of the Articles of Impeachment uh, for Richard Nixon that were passed out of the Judiciary Committee. But a really important one that's been in there as as a high crime and misdemeanor from the, from the British beginnings of all of this is that the idea of abuse of power. 
Uh, and that, of course, is tricky because anytime you talk about abuse of power, you start with the idea that the official is using some power or authority that was legitimately granted to him or her by virtue of the office that he inhabits. Um, but then uh, the person takes that power and uses it for some illegitimate reason or purpose. That's the nature of abuse of power. Um, that's a principle that's been you know, jogging along now for 600 years and more. Uh, in the particular case that's come up in the last couple of weeks with respect to Mr. Trump fits very neatly into that category. What we have is a president who has been given a variety of powers by virtue of the fact that he was elected. Included among these are his power over the military, not just to command the disposition of forces in war, but also to command and, 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 and uh, you know, to, to involve himself in, in managing our military alliances and the placement of, of uh, military assets and the expenditure of military funds. That's sort of one basket of things that the commander-in-chief power, military power. And the other power that the president is given by the Constitution is he's essentially our chief diplomat. He's at least the leader uh, of our uh, of our diplomatic um, uh, interactions with the world. And what we have in Ukraine is a president who used both of those powers improperly. He approached, and, and also it turns out, apparently, that various of his uh, agents and underlings uh, approached uh, representative of the Ukraine and, in effect, said... Um, we support you in a variety of ways, Ukraine. We support you with military aid. We support you with diplomatic aid. Um, we support you with economic aid in a very a very particular setting because Ukraine is not just any country. Ukraine is a country on the border of Russia, a portion of which has already been illegally annexed by Russia, the Crimea. And in the eastern part of Ukraine, Russia is actually supporting an ongoing low-level war against Ukraine, trying to either take it over territorially or essentially dominate it politically. So we have a country that is facing an actual threat to its continued territorial and, uh, and territorial integrity and independence. And this administration, Mr. Trump, specifically said to Ukraine, uh, we have been helping you a lot in trying to fend off Russian aggression, but, as Mr. Trump said in the tape transcript, um, that's not, the, the relationship isn't sufficiently reciprocal. We want something in return, and the something he demanded in return was the favor of having Ukraine investigate certain matters relating to Trump's political opponents, most notably Mr. Biden and his son. Now, that, in my view, is uh, a grotesque abuse of power, one of the really most scandalous things that any president that I know of has ever done. Um, and uh, I think that fits very neatly in the, the category of abuse of power and therefore as an impeachable offense. Uh, we're going to come back to President Trump, but I, I wanted to ask you, under that notion of high crimes and or misdemeanors, what was President Andrew Johnson's infractions? Well, Andrew Johnson was 
impeached for complicated reasons. There's a real reason, if you will, an underlying reason he was impeached, and there was the specific ground that formed the basis of most of the charges against him. The real reason was that, as you know, Andrew Johnson ascended the presidency after President Lincoln was assassinated. Johnson was his vice president. And when the Civil War ended, there was a uh, tremendous disagreement between Johnson and the Republicans who controlled Congress over how Reconstruction of the defeated South would go forward. The Republicans, for their part, wanted to make sure that the South would not rise again, that uh, the governments of the former Confederate states would be genuinely reconstructed and populated with people who had, had not led the rebellion, and moreover, their social structure would be sufficiently revised that um, rebellion was unlikely, and even more particularly that uh, newly freed slaves would uh, receive considerably more rights, including political rights, than, of course, they'd ever had during slavery. Johnson's view was very different. He uh, was in favor of readmitting the southern states very, very quickly, uh, with relatively minimal changes in their government, and certainly al almost no change um, to the status of black people, other than the fact that they would no longer legally be slaves. He, he essentially wanted them to remain as a sort of a class of peons um, of, of you know low-paid labor. And uh, there was a deep disagreement between him and Congress on that point. Congress passed a variety of legislation, and one constitutional amendment, the 14th Amendment, to try to effectuate Reconstruction in the way that they thought appropriate. Johnson vetoed those bills over and over and over again. His vetoes were overturned. And he also tried to undercut congressional efforts at Reconstruction and and you know, elevation of, uh, of black rights um, through a variety of ex executive actions. And uh, this conflict went on for some time. Uh, Member people in Congress wanted to impeach him on that ground, the basic difference about the constitutional future of the country. Uh, but they were they were sort of wavering on whether they could and should do that. When Johnson gave them the the excuse, if you will, or a discreet act that they could they could use to impeach him. Congress had passed something called the Tenure of Office Act, which purported to prevent the president from firing certain officials without senatorial consent. And one of the officials that Congress wanted to protect was the Secretary of War, who was favorable to the Republican view of Reconstruction. Johnson wanted him out because he wanted more control over the Army, um, and ultimately he fired Stanton. He did that on February the 21st of 1868. On February the 21st, 4th, three days later, the House voted to impeach him. And the impeachment battle that ensued was largely over the particulars of the firing of Stanton, but the undercurrent of it all was this fundamental disagreement about the Reconstruction of the South, the place of black people in America, uh, and two very different views of, of the constitutional future of the country. Uh, are you concerned, uh, you, you, you gave an answer earlier a, a little bit about um, about the history of impeachment, and are you concerned that in our public discourse it's, it has taken on a specter, a sports mentality, if you will. Uh, almost, we talk about impeachment almost as if we're talking about, uh, I don't know, the Bears and the Packers. And, 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 and is that... Um, 
does that diminish the seriousness of these issues that you're addressing, sir? Certainly, one has to be concerned about that to a point. But I don't think it's just impeachment that's the problem, right? Uh, Our entire public conversation in the present day is... You know, is highly polarized, and virtually everything that you know, our public officials do or talk about doing is reduced to you know, its lowest common denominator, the advantage or disadvantage to one side or the other. And, uh, and that, of course, is how impeachment is, is being viewed here. Now, that's not, of course, an entirely modern phenomenon, Going all the way back to the framing period, I mean, Alexander Hamilton wrote in Federalist 65 that impeachment was would always sort of call up the political passions of the time, and that the force of those passions would tempt people to um, make their judgments about a presidential impeachment dispute not on the facts, but on how the result would affect their side of the of the partisan divide. That's been recognized as a possibility since the very, very beginning. I do think, however, that the last, you know, that, it, that it, impeachments historically have not necessarily fallen into that trap. Certainly the Nixon case is a really um, an admirable example of where uh, Republicans, who were certainly not happy that the president of their party was being investigated with a possible eye impeachment. They certainly weren't happy about that. But certainly the members of both the House and the Senate who were Republicans and were involved in those investigations, um, while they didn't you know, proceed perhaps as enthusiastically as their Democratic colleagues, and they were always looking for you know, exculpatory explanations of the things they found, Nonetheless, I think they took the whole business extremely seriously. Um, they recognized that the things that were being alleged against uh, President Nixon were matters of grave importance. They recognized it was important to find the facts, and they participated in good faith in all of that. And then when it came down to the end, um, seven Republican members of the House Judiciary Committee voted for one or the other of the articles of impeachment. And Almost all the rest of them later said they would have done so had they known about the so-called smoking gun tape, which came out after the House voted out the articles. In other words, what we had then was an atmosphere which was certainly uh, politically charged. I mean, after all, this is you know an immediate aftermath of the Vietnam War at a time when the country is divided in uh, terrific ways. Uh, but nonetheless, the the party whose president was being impeached, by and large, behave with great distinction. And at the end of the day, it was you know, a delegation of, of Republicans that went to the White House to tell Richard Nixon that the time had come for him to go, not merely because he didn't have the votes, but because, in their view, he had, in fact, committed impeachable offenses. Hmm. It's a little hard to imagine that kind of thing happening today, but golly, um, it would be nice if we could uh, if we could get that degree of um, you know, uh, uh, of duty and public spiritedness in the politicians of, of both parties. Well, well, let's just take on that note. Let's just take the emoluments clause that you write about in Chapter 14. 
in my view, that the emoluments clauses ought to garner universal condemnation. That's how I see the world. But in the public discourse is an arcane provision if my side's in violation. And it's really only applicable if your side's in violation. That seems to be the way the, the, the immature way the discourse is going, not just with impeachment, but with the most things. Well, I mean, you know, to some extent, right? It's just human nature, right? My side does it, I make excuses, and if your side does it, does it, I don't. I mean, I mean, like, Democrats have no monopoly on virtue here, right? I mean, when mm-hmm. Bill Clinton uh, was found to have done the really quite despicable things that he did vis-a-vis Monica Lewinsky, I mean, he, you know, he uh, abused a, a, a young woman, not in a forceful way, but he, he abused, sexually, you know, exploited a young woman in the you know, just outside the, and sometimes inside the Oval Office, and then lied about it under oath. I mean, you know, a man with any sense of personal honor would have resigned when that was disclosed. But, uh, you know, Democrats rallied around him with some reluctance, made varying excuses for his behavior, some of them valid, and, you know, and I contributed that to some degree, arguing that you know, as, as discouraging as his behavior was and as personally despicable, it didn't amount to, you know, a removable high crime and misdemeanor. But let's face it, I mean, Democrats bent themselves into pretzels, you know, trying to to justify in some way or at least to minimize that pretty awful behavior. Now, that said, I think what Mr. Trump has been doing consistently and what's he, what he's doing with what he did with respect to Ukraine, you know, puts Clinton so far in the shade as to be invisible. I mean, Clinton wasn't misusing the powers of the presidency um, to, you know, secure his reelection, and he, and he certainly wasn't expressly threatening an endangered foreign country to, you know, remove all of its defenses if it didn't bend to his will. I mean, that's a whole different thing. But, you know, I, I think you know self-righteousness is is a uh, you know, is something we should all be a little wary of. Well, he did purge himself. What's that? As he did, as it, President Clinton did perjure himself, didn't he? No question. Of course he did. I mean, I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, he tried to. You know, you can make some very sort of pettifogging legal arguments that maybe he didn't uh, technically, but sure he did. He lied. Who knows he lied? Um, and if he was disbarred as a result, uh, but he survived in office um, for, you know, for 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 reasons that are you know pretty pretty clear in history. As to emoluments, uh, you know, it seems to me clear at least that President Trump is violating the Foreign Emoluments Clause and may may very well be violating the Domestic Emoluments Clause as well. Um, interesting question whether you know those those violations should be impeachable. Professor Bowman, for our listeners, just touch on those two clauses on, 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 on what both the, the foreign and domestic emoluments clauses mean. In a, I mean in a, essentially, the foreign emoluments clause is really there because we don't want foreign powers to be paying off our leaders, particularly the president. We don't want them to be bribing them, in effect. Um, and so we, the foreign emoluments clause basically says, you know, presidents can't accept really anything of value from foreign powers, unless, and here's a critical point, unless Congress approves of it. And you might say, well, why, why would that be in there? And it's because, for the obvious reason, that 
you know, sometimes a foreign country might want to give a nice gift of you know, a plaque, a medallion, a painting, a, you know, what have you, uh, an honorary title, something to a, to, to a president. And, you know, it ought to be possible for Congress to say, oh, well, that's fine. You know, you know give them some silverware. We don't care. Um, uh, that's not going to affect anything. Um, but the problem with the current situation, and really the problem with trying to impeach Mr. Trump for what I think are some pretty plain violations of the Foreign Emoluments Clause, is that Congress could do something about this. I mean, they could vote an expression of disapproval um, about what's happened, and, and although they've thought about it really hard, the House has really thought about this fairly hard, and they haven't chosen to do that. And also, the foreign emoluments issue with respect to Trump is kind of a tricky one. The, the emoluments that he's receiving are, at least as far as we know, almost exclusively in the form of you know, payments to his businesses by people who are sort of using their services. And that's a novel issue. Um, now, I don't think it ought to matter that, you know, one sort of launders the funds that, you know, foreign governments and foreign entities are paying to Mr. Trump's benefit through some commercial structure. But it is a difficult, it is an interesting question, and and that makes it, for that's another reason why I think it's a little harder to impeach him for it. It's a somewhat novel idea. The domestic emoluments clauses basically are there, basically say that neither the federal government nor the states can pay the president money over and above his stated salary, I mean, to put it simply. And the idea there is you don't want either, you know, federal entities or, for that matter, state governments sort of buying off the president by giving him something special uh, over and above his salary. And the there are issues with respect to state governments, but also issues with respect to the federal government. For example, uh, the lease uh, on the uh, on the Trump Hotel in downtown Washington is really not. The terms of the lease are that's not supposed to be held by someone who's uh, who's a federal official. Uh, a point which uh, the, the relevant federal agency just sort of shrugged off when Mr. Trump came into office. And therefore, he's getting, you know, uh, a significant benefit in some respects from from the federal government, and there there may be others as well. Um, but while I while I think there are pretty clear cases that he's violated both the, the federal and state emoluments clauses, uh, rather than the the, the um, foreign and domestic emoluments clauses, that uh, I'd be a little hesitant to try to impeach him on those grounds alone, because again, Congress could have done something here to make it clear that they disapprove. And so long as they sit on their hands, and so long as we're dealing with somewhat novel issues, I'd be kind of I'd be disinclined to impeach him just on that ground. Uh, now, if Congress were to step in and say, you know, we disapprove, and therefore you no longer have permission to receive these emoluments from foreign countries, and Trump were to persist, uh, that, I think, presents a different case, but we don't have it yet. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with the University of Missouri Law Professor Frank Bowman, and we're discussing his latest book, High Crimes and Misdemeanors, a history for a history of impeachment for the age of Trump. Uh, Professor Bowman, you've sort of alluded already to this, but I'm just going to ask you out, outright. Uh, 
has the bar been cleared, in your opinion, to impeach the president? With some reluctance, I think I have to say yes. I, indeed, I mean, I've suggested uh, long before the last couple of weeks that Mr. Trump is engaged in some behaviors that certainly historically would be impeachable. I think the second volume, at least, of the, the Mueller report make out a, a, a pretty overwhelming case for obstruction of justice and misuse of you know, the domestic law enforcement authority. Um, and that was the, the ground of the first article of impeachment against Richard Nixon. But uh, that particular set of concerns doesn't seem to have gained uh, national traction, partly because, uh, for two reasons, I think. I mean, one, because of the characterizations of the second volume that, you know, were gotten out there by Attorney General Barr before the public actually got to read the thing. But more particularly because the whole investigation was about whether or not Russia interfered in the election, and the first volume of the report basically concludes that it did, but uh, but then concludes that there was no proof that Mr. Trump criminally conspired with Russia to engage in that kind of election meddling. And because of that, the Mueller report ends up saying something like this. Yes, he obstructed an investigation, but he obstructed an investigation into what Mueller concluded was a non-crime uh, with respect to Russia. And while that kind of thing matters a great deal and should matter a great deal to people who care about federal law enforcement and care about the integrity of, of the law in this country, it doesn't have a lot, it doesn't exactly sing to the, to the man or woman on the street. Oh, so he obstructed an objection, an investigation into a non-crime. Eh. Um, whereas the current situation is one that I think is easily understandable. This is an overt abuse of power for an objective which I think really cannot be rationally defended, and moreover, which runs directly contrary to both basic American values and the entire thrust of American foreign policy for the last 70 years. Professor uh, uh, Bowman, speak to the argument, though, with that, with, in that thread, speak to the argument that would be most likely presented with what you're with, 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 with your line of thinking right now. And the counter-argument would be, um, why would you engage, if you engage in impeachment, you are circumventing the will of the people, especially with only a year before the general election. Why not let the people decide? How would you respond to that? Well, anytime you impeach a president, you are, in a certain sense, uh, overturning uh, the results of an election. Of course. But that's what it's for. Right? When the framers created impeachment, they actually debated about this point. Some of them said, well, you know, we have these elections every four years. That ought to be enough. But others of them said, not enough. A president may well abuse his power, may become corrupt, um, may lose his capacity, may do a variety of things uh, before the election, and therefore we need something else. Uh, in addition, uh, you know, there's certainly a pragmatic argument to be made that while the election is, is coming and people have an opportunity to make a choice, but to accept that entirely is essentially to say, well, regardless of what a president does, regardless 
regardless of how horrible it is, regardless of how obviously historically impeachable it is, or regardless of what, how great a violation it is of our values, how great a violation of his oath, how entirely repugnant it is to everything the American stands for, well, if he manages to kind of get over the halfway point of his term, then we can't do anything. I don't find that an acceptable argument. Uh, you you wrote, uh, beginning of Chapter 16, uh, quote, The paramount lesson of this book is that impeachment is and was always intended to be a means of protecting the Constitution in a broad sense, by which I mean not only the particular governmental arrangements and personal rights specified in the document, but equally important, the distinctly American institutions and norms that have grown, flourished, and solidified around the written core. I guess my question is, sir, if we're really honest, hasn't that the political jousting of the last quarter century taken a toll on those distinct, excuse me, those distinctly American institutions and norms, uh, not only the impeachment uh, of Bill Clinton, but, but, but we've used these things as political tools, but n- and now they're just seen almost exclusively uh, as part- partisan political tools, what we, t- what we talked about earlier. Well, I think our politics certainly has degraded, and it doesn't have as much to do with impeachment, or which is, of course, a, a rarely occurring event, as it has to do with lots of other things. Uh, it has to do with the media environment. It has to do with uh, you know, the changes in the, in, our, in, the, in the composition of the political parties. It has to do with a whole variety of different things. Um, and also just the social tensions that have, you know, have torn at us. But I think it's terribly important that we reflect on what it is that unites the country, what it is that are what norms, what what values are essential to the American Constitution and you know, the, the structure it supports, the, the, the country it ought to nourish. Uh, and from time to time, and this is a pretty darn good time to do it, we need to decide that uh, some of the the written and unwritten uh, norms of behavior that are coming loose and we're losing need to be restored. Because if we don't restore them, if we don't uh, stop tearing at each other on purely partisan grounds and think about the good of the whole, think about the, the things that bind us together, the unwritten norms that make this whole marvelous structure work, if we don't use impeachment or some other mechanism to reinforce those things, we're in, in, in dire straits. It may be that we're in a situation that is unrecoverable. I pray not, um, and uh, I hope that this is, this is a moment to at least move in that direction. Well, finally, um, I'd like to put you in um, what I'm defining as the, the Machiavelli seat. Which, which, which makes you the counsel to the Speaker of the House. And, you, and I, w- I would like my question, and I po- I've posed to others who've been on the show, and so uh, I'd like to know how would you counsel Speaker Pelosi, give, given your last answer, and, and, and let's assume momentarily that you, that you knew for a fact 
that you did not have the votes in the Senate to convict. You will never have the votes in the Senate to convict. And moreover, you also knew that if you went ahead with impeachment uh, proceedings, you would you could cause permanent harm to the eventual Democratic nominee. With all of that, sir, how would you counsel the Speaker of the House? Well, the, the I mean, I'm I'm not in a very good position to give political advice to Speaker Pelosi, who knows more about politics and her little finger than I do in my whole body. Uh, that's, but that's why we're having fun on the public rally. Yeah, <laughs> go right ahead. Uh, uh, but I think the let's uh, say first, I have various respect for Speaker Pelosi's initial hesitance to proceed with a full-blown impeachment inquiry in the beginning, because I understand entirely her calculation that going forward might pose political risk to some of her Democratic members. And she thought, I think, that uh, it could even risk the Democratic majority in the House. I respect that. Uh, What's more, I'm not one of these people who says that, well, uh, simply because there is an historically valid case for impeaching a president, uh, that we've got to do it uh, for some reasons of highfalutin principle. Because if, you know, going forward is just a futile gesture, which does nothing more than, you know, hurt the Democratic Party in Speaker Pelosi's case, or perhaps make it significantly more probable that Mr. Trump is reelected, then I'm not in favor of that. But I no longer believe that. That's the situation that faces us. I think the Ukraine matter, Mr. Trump's response to it, frankly, his pretty obvious and daily kind of decompensation as he seems to become wilder and wilder in his responses and even more and more extreme in the orders that he's giving to, you know, his subordinates to respond to it. I, I no longer think that doing the right thing is also going to be uh, politically damaging. I think that a, a properly conducted impeachment inquiry is not only constitutionally justifiable, but I think it uh, is at worst uh, likely to be uh, a politically neutral um, enterprise, so long as uh, you know the Democrats do their job, do it well, do it you know, do it thoroughly, do it. Um, you know, fairly, uh, do it expeditiously, decide what they need, do what the evidence they need, um, proceed to impeachment if the evidence supports that, get the matter before the Senate in a, in a timely fashion, and get the matter resolved. And if they do that, then I think it's not only the right thing to do, but uh, I'd at least hazard an uninformed guess that it's uh, a politically desirable thing to do. The book is High Crimes and Misdemeanors, A History of Impeachment for the Age of Trump. My guest for the hour has been Frank Bowman, University of Missouri Law Professor. Sir, thank you for joining me today on The Public Morality. It's a great pleasure. Call me anytime. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N at publicmorality.org. Our archived broadcasts are located 
at soundcloud.com. Just search for Public Morality. You can also find us on iTunes. And my new book, Solitaire, is available on paperback and Kindle on Amazon. The Public Morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at the Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.